Welcome to Safe Ground, a small organisation with big ideas, working in disarmament, human security, climate change and refugees. I'm Matilda Byrne. Thank you for tuning in to our series, Stay in Command, where we talk about lethal autonomous weapons, the Australian context, and why we must not delegate decision-making from humans to machines. This episode, we're looking at the tech perspective. We're going to discuss the technological concerns of lethal autonomous weapons and their implication on the tech industry. And so with me today, I have a great guest, Dr. Lizzie Silver. Lizzie is a senior data scientist at Silverpond, which is an AI company based in Melbourne, also where I'm coming to you from. So welcome, Lizzie. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Before we jump in, I'm just going to talk a little bit about just the definition of killer robots in case any of our listeners are unfamiliar with exactly what it is we're talking about. So killer robots or fully autonomous weapons are weapons that have no human control over the decision making. So when they select a target and engage the target, so decide to deploy lethal force on that target, there is not a human involved in that process and is just based on uh, AI and algorithms. So with these uh, fully autonomous weapons, there are lots of concerns that span a whole lot of areas. Today, we're going to go into the technological concerns in particular because we have Lizzie and her expertise, but there's also things like moral, ethical, legal, global security concerns, a whole host of issues really. Um, And what I'm interested in, Lizzie, is just to start off with, if you could tell us what it is about the prospect of fully autonomous weapons that you find the most worrying. So what about them makes you driven to oppose their development? It's really a, a kind of fundamental issue with these systems is that you can't give a guarantee about how they're going to behave. With humans, we can't give a guarantee about how humans are going to behave, but that's why we have all of these mechanisms for holding humans accountable. You can't hold an algorithm accountable in any meaningful way. So what you would like to do is uh, find a way to characterise how it's going to behave in every situation. But the thing is, a conflict situation is just too complex. There are too many potential inputs and outputs, different scenarios that could confront the AI. You're never going to get through all of them. You're never going to be able to fully characterise the space. So what you'd like to do is say, okay, on the the sample of situations, we've seen uh, this kind of behaviour. So we expect that in the future, in similar situations, the system is going to behave similarly. The trouble with a conflict situation is that things don't stay similar. It's an adversarial context. So you can't give any guarantee that the system is going to perform the way you you expect and want it to because things are changing and they're changing by design. You know, the the enemy that you're fighting is trying to change things in ways that will screw you up. That's just a fundamental characteristic of, of warfare. For sure. And I think, you know, warfare is one of the most unpredictable and chaotic environments that we could possibly think of to put any kind of machine into, which is really troubling. And I think you also really hit on some of the, I guess, characteristics of AI that have been flagged by the international community as concerns with these weapons. So things like unpredictability, reliability, obviously the huge concern around accountability, 
Um, and another one that's come up is also explainability. I wonder if you could speak to that at all in sort of the black box phenomena. Yeah, I mean, explainability is really what we're trying to use to get some sense of comfort with these algorithms. We want some way to characterise their behaviour. Uh, but there's no single kind of explainability and something may be explainable and still turn out to be a bit unpredictable in ways that you don't expect. We keep coming up with new kinds of explainability, new uh, explanations for how these complex systems work. Every time we think to test them out on new benchmarks, and an example of that is a paper that came out uh, fairly recently on texture versus shape that found that AI systems really pay attention to the texture of objects, not the shape of them, because there's more information in texture and it's easier for them to use. And if they can solve the problem just using texture, they will. And on major image benchmarks, you can actually do really well just using texture. You're not forced to use shape information. And the way the researchers demonstrated this is by creating a new data set where the objects had conflicting shapes and textures. So you might take a picture of a cat and overlay it with the texture of elephant skin. And a human looks at that and says it's a cat, but the AI looks at that and says it's an elephant. So it's behaving in a way that it's different to how humans behave. And it's been trained to do this because paying attention to textures was enough to recognize elephants in the past. It never needed to learn the shape of an elephant. But you think about how that behavior is gonna play out in a warfare situation where the enemy is inventing new kinds of camouflage and you're not necessarily going to be able to predict how the AI behaves when the enemy changes their outfits and starts to dress like civilians. And particularly if you're retraining the algorithm to improve its performance constantly, you could have a system that avoids civilians up to a point and then learns to target them. Yeah, for sure. I think um, it's really interesting how really simple things can sort of confuse the AI. So some of the proponents of actually building fully autonomous weapons have stated that they will be able to make sure it can identify civilian objects, things like uh, a red cross or red crescent symbol in a conflict zone so it wouldn't attack those things. And then that, for me, was quite puzzling because it would be so easy for any enemy actor or non-state actor to then just put a red cross symbol on the side of their vehicle and then not be attacked. So I think these are really kind of complex and nuanced things. You were talking about texture and shape as an example of something that, you know, AI is trained to recognise. Um, what about facial recognition and where we're at with that? Because obviously in terms of targeting specific people uh, in a conflict scenario, that's going to be a big part of the sensory input for these weapons, we can assume. Yeah, so it turns out that the AI reflects the input data. Uh, so AIs that are developed in mostly white countries tend to be a lot better at recognising white faces AIs developed in China are much better at recognizing Asian faces. And the, they also reflect the, the biases of the people who develop them. It seems likely that if we develop AIs, they're not going to be as good 
necessarily at recognising the people that we are in conflict with. They are likely to look different to us on average. Mm, For sure. And I think algorithmic bias is something that has been flagged as really problematic in terms of how it impacts um, certain races more than others in terms of sort of disproportionately impacting certain people from parts of the world, uh, which is, you know, also a great concern. Yeah. And the fact that it performs worse on uh, women than on men, particularly black women, worse than black men, indicates that there's a bias based on the data set, potentially uh, the, the creators just haven't focused so much on performance in that subset. And that, you know, can't be because of uh, population difference. You know, there's just as many women as men, slightly more actually. Mm, for sure, that's really interesting. And also that it's these perhaps biases of the people that are training in the first place that are perhaps inclined to then train it on more men. Why is that? And then those become embedded in what the software is able to do. And then I think when you extend that to a warfare situation and think of those biases that are being embedded by um, a state that's waging war or that is in conflict, what it's going to reflect is potentially just going to exacerbate sort of the harms that occur in conflict. Right. And none of these are intended issues with the AI. They're, they're all just sort of emergent properties based on how they're trained and the data sets that they're trained on and the way people put them together uh, without specifically setting out to mitigate these problems. Now, there's a whole lot of unintended situations in warfare there's a lot of unknown unknowns and if we can't even get right equal performance across different races and genders in a situation where things are not changing very rapidly it seems really overly optimistic to me to think that we can distinguish civilians and non-combatants from combatants it seems incredibly optimistic to me to say that the AIs can be able to make kind of ethical judgment in the moment and say, oh, this person was attacking versus this person was surrendering. Those actions can look really similar. For sure. And I think there's a lot of importance of having that human evaluation and what you're talking about with this distinction between enemy and combatants is getting into the territory of international humanitarian law and I think there's a important part to that decision-making that a human can read certain signals and cues and evaluate them when there's something that's not necessarily concrete. They can understand the wider context and sort of use their human judgment, really, which is what it's essential on top of this other information to then make a decision. And this is why when we talk about meaningful human control or human involvement in this decision-making it's so important that we do have that added layer, I guess. And it's not purely the algorithm's decision-making based on what it can attempt to understand and compute. I think it's probably worth also acknowledging why these weapons are desirable for the military, because they are under development in a handful of countries, so the US, Russia, Israel, the UK, and also Australia. Um, And so they wouldn't be trying to develop them if they didn't think there were benefits. Some of them are obviously around, I guess, strategic things. So uh, not having to have as many boots on the ground is obviously desirable for 
militaries and there's kind of other ethical questions around whether that's good or not. But what about from a technical point of view? Why do you see these weapons as potentially being appealing? So there are a few situations where I can really understand the appeal. Firstly, machines can react a lot faster than humans. So there are already automated systems like CRAM and Phalanx that are intended to react to incoming missiles that are coming in faster than a human could avert them. And those are supposed to be defensive systems, but they do sometimes screw up. You know, there have been cases where they've shot down planes. Now, with the AI, you have a similar situation. You might want the AI to take control of a fighter jet to perform evasive maneuvers faster than a human can. But then when you're performing aggressive maneuvers faster than a human can, then you have a problem, right? Because the the AI then needs to make all of these complex ethical judgments. The other situation in which you might want it is if you have developed these systems where you've maintained human control, the AI is maybe helping to pilot a drone, but it's not helping to decide who to strike with the drone. And then you go into an area where your communications are cut off with that drone. So the idea is that you should be able to keep fighting in the same capacity, uh, even though communications are cut off. This I'm less sympathetic to, because I don't see the need to continue to use lethal force if you can't control the weapon, right? You can always just have that drone turn into a reconnaissance drone while it is cut off from you. Those are some of the situations. And then there's an argument that I'm really unsympathetic to, that I've heard from some military people, that they would like to just not expose their people to the soul-crushing situation where they have to kill another human being and while I understand that that does psychologically damage people I think that removing us from that damage just makes it so much easier to get into a conflict situation so much easier to create civilian casualties and I don't think we should be in the position of removing ourselves from the harm that we are doing. For sure. I think that idea of lowering the threshold of war because now our own people won't be exposed to this doesn't mean that there's not other people and civilians that are now also being exposed. And we need that barrier to war in the first place so that we don't escalate unnecessarily or are overzealous in starting wars. I think it's really important. And I think the other moral component when we're talking about machines and this decision-making, so this idea that you mentioned if they lose communications, should they just go on and continue? And especially around the idea of deploying lethal force, this idea of handing over a kill decision to a machine. And so are we okay as society, as humanity, to allow machines, these algorithms, to make decisions over life and death? I think alone is incredibly problematic and a precedent that's very troubling for us to set. Yeah, I I would not be comfortable trusting my life to a computer vision system that was supposed to recognise me as a non-combatant. I mean, I, I work with these systems every day and they fail in really surprising ways. And it is just too complex and difficult a situation, warfare. 
adversarial situations are ones where you can't really give guarantees on performance. Every guarantee that we have in statistics is based on some assumption that the data stays similar to a certain degree. Even transfer learning guarantees where they talk about how we're transferring to a new situation, the data is going to fundamentally change, but to guarantee that the system is still going to work, we have to assume that something stays the same. And I don't know what you can assume stays the same in war except for basic physics. Sure. And I think also in terms of guarantees about these systems is safeguarding them from hacking and that being a huge risk. Yeah, absolutely. That is a risk in all military systems currently, but it gets a lot worse when you can take something that's already autonomous. I mean, it's a risk with remote piloted systems too, right? Because if you can hack into them, then you can create havoc, right? You don't need to be present to turn them on the side that created them. But yeah, similarly with autonomous weapons. Mm, I think um, we've talked a lot about, I guess, some of the limits of AI and how they're particularly problematic in the application of weaponizing AI, having them involved in fully autonomous weapons. But it's really important not to forget the positive applications of AI. And even in certain contexts within defense, like you mentioned earlier, evasive maneuvers in pilots, there's some really great stuff happening in mine clearance with using robotics and AI. Um, But even more broadly than that, I think in society in general, it's really important to step back and look at the good that it's bringing. So I wondered if you could speak to maybe some of the other domains where AI is being used in a really positive way for social good. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff out there. I mean, one of the things that my company has developed is decision support tool for clinicians, for ophthalmologists. It recognises fluid in the retina, which is one of the things that you get with macular degeneration, which causes blindness. So the AI picks up these pockets of fluid, some so small that they might be missed by a clinician and helps to quantify how bad that is. And that's another system that's under human control, right? It's just making recommendations to the clinician who then makes the actual decisions about treatment. There are tons of uses in industry as well. We're working with power companies to help uh, take inventory of their assets uh, across the power network, which can help with um, making sure everything's up to code for the bushfire risks. A lot can be done with these tools. And I'd like to see more investment in uh, peaceful uses of AI. What was the investment that you said the Australian government Uh, put into developing an ethical military AI? Yeah, so just the one project that was about um, researching how to embed ethics into fully autonomous weapons specifically that the Australian government funded was worth uh, roughly $9 million. Mm. And that's part of a huge amount of much, much, much larger funding that goes into things like the research centres that innovate on autonomous systems for the military so trusted autonomous systems when it was launched received 50 million dollars and just earlier this year the royal australian air force um allotted 40 million dollars to boeing to innovate a new autonomous combat aircraft also so these huge scale amounts of money that we're talking about 
Interesting. I was recently part of a medical research future fund grant application, successful alas, that was um, for a pool of funding that I think was $7.5 million to be split across several small projects. And that is smaller than the grant that was made just for an ethical military AI. I think there are so many applications of AI in medicine. Why are we funding this pie-in-the-sky idea of an AI that's going to make ethical judgments? Why not put that into medical AI development? That's what we could really use. Mm, For sure. I think um, divesting of even just a fraction of funding, it's amazing to think about what could be achieved. One big challenge, though, I think perhaps when you have both of these things happening simultaneously, so these developments for social good as well as um, autonomous capabilities within the military, is this idea of dual use and how different components and there's this complexity where it can easily be repurposed. If you could speak a little bit to that, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on how this is a problem and how it could be mitigated. Yeah, so it's difficult because everything that goes into developing that aircraft that can autonomously strike enemy combatants also goes into an aircraft that autonomously does search and rescue operations, right? It's still got to uh, navigate. It's still got to find a target. The only difference is the deployment of lethal force. So everything that you build can be used for multiple purposes. And that has some consequences. You know, some people will not work on computer vision at all because they're so worried about the problems with facial recognition. So we're losing talent because there are people removing themselves from the industry. They're so worried about these bad uses. I think if there were a treaty banning some of these bad uses, people would feel better about working in the area. They wouldn't worry that their boss might tell them to work on a military project that they just can't countenance. Mm, For sure. I think that really speaks to the heart of why regulation is particularly important, especially for the industry. Um, People knowing that there is a line of this is what we maybe building and can innovate but also this is what will never be built and I can as a you know worker with confidence know that my work will not be used in this way because there is a ban in place and there is stigmatization of these weapons and they are considered unacceptable exactly I think as well the delineation in law makes that a lot stronger so one part about having a ban in an international scale is it can then be sort of legislated and it's understood internationally that we have these particular lines in place, a delineation. But I guess on the other side of the coin, there's also things like companies making their own policies, saying that they won't do contracts with defence on these sorts of things. What do you think the place is for action like that within the tech industry? I think that's really important. Um, But I also think it's really hard to get right and hard to sort of set the level for a particular company. There are always some projects where, you know, most of the people in the room are going to say that's fine and other people are going to have a problem with them. For example, a vegan employee is unlikely to want anything to do with animal agriculture, whereas other people will be fine with it. We got offered a project at Silicon years ago before I joined the company, actually. 
Oh, this goes to the dual use point as well. So the idea was to uh, create an AI that could target and kill feral animals in rural areas. And we turned that down because it was just too close to an automated killing machine. But feral animals in rural areas are a real problem. They're very hard to control. They're really bad for the environment. So people are going to have different ideas about which projects are okay and which aren't. If we knew that that tool for controlling feral animals were never going to be used to kill humans, then maybe we would have been okay with it. Depends on the person. So I think each company needs to set their own line. And we've taken the approach that if any employee is not okay with a project, they don't have to work on it. I think that's also really important. Mm. I think that's really good, yeah, giving individuals a bit of ownership and decision-making so that it can promote, I guess, responsible innovation and ethical thinking by employees. Obviously, AI ethics in general is becoming a really big field. And I guess more on perhaps the individual worker, if you are listening, there's some great things that you could do. So Future of Life have a open letter that's for roboticists and kind of AI people in this kind of technological areas. And it's basically an open letter letter pledging to not be involved in the development of fully autonomous weapons and calling for a ban. So if you've been listening to this and you're really compelled, I would really um, call on you to go and check that out and sign it if you're concerned about this issue and want to see action. Do you think, Lizzie, as an individual, there's anything else beyond kind of, I guess, conscious decisions that you think they people could do maybe within their company? Um, I think becoming aware of the campaign is really important. Eventually, this is a political process, right? We have to convince politicians to sign on to a treaty. If we could get an industry-wide stance, if people could talk about this and come to a position on it, then we'd have a lot more power to influence the government on this. I think right now, most people in tech are just not aware that the campaign to stop killer robots is a thing. So spreading the word is important. And just thinking about how it could affect your work. Maybe it doesn't now. But think about what you would say if your boss asked you to work on a military project where your model was going to be used to target people. What would you say? For sure. I think there's some really great concluding thoughts from you, Lizzie. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. It was great to have you on. If you um, do want to find out more and get educated, more awareness, stopkillerrobots.org, that's stopkillerrobots.org, is the global website where you can find information. Or you could check out our new report, Australia Out of the Loop, available on the SafeGround website. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on the tech perspective. If you want to know more, look for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, Australia Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, or use the hashtag AusBanKillerRobots, AusAUS ban killer robots become part of the movement so we stay in command thank you for listening and please share with your friends for access to this and other episodes along with full transcription and relevant links and information head to safeground.org.au forward slash podcasts our podcasts come to you from all around australia and we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners throughout and their continuing connection to country land waters and culture 
stock audio provided by Vidivo, downloaded from www.vidivo.net. Thank you for listening to Safe Ground.